Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show. Cannot wait. This guest today has been years in the making. Very, very happy to have him on the show. But before we do, you know where you are. You heard the Chase Jarvis Live Show on Creative Live, where I sit down with the world's most amazing and creative people who help me dissect their own lives, the lives of the creators and the entrepreneurs that we revere, respect, admire most with the goal of helping you live your dreams in career, in hobby, and in life. My guest today is the one and only Adam Grant. He has been Wharton's top-rated professor for seven straight years. He considers himself an organizational psychologist. And right now you're going, what does that mean? Let's just say he's a leading expert on how we can find motivation and meaning live more generous, and most importantly, creative lives. He's been recognized as one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers, was recognized by Fortune's 40 Under 40, the author of Count of 1, 2, 3, 4, New York Times bestselling books that sold millions of copies. I've read uh, all of his books and some of them twice. Most recently, the one I read twice was Originals. That book's been translated into 35 languages. Um... He's also among the top authors on every platform out there, the Amazon, <laughs> Apple, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and praised globally for his work on all of the above topics. In this particular conversation, though, we talk about things that you want to know about that you've said, hey, Chase, help me with procrastination. I have a project I want to get off the ground and I'm stuck. We talk about intuition. How do you know when to trust your gut and when to ignore it? talked about mastery, that idea behind going deep on one subject, becoming an expert so that you can lift in and stamp those, those concepts of ex expertise into so many other areas of your life. And for those of you who are dubious about this whole creativity thing is too soft and squishy, Adam is a hardcore scientist. So we talk about the science behind creativity, the science behind success, and importantly, fulfillment. And most of all, how it's this crazy, non-conforming people, these ideas that are most far afield, how some of those people and ideas are ultimately the ones worth sharing with the world. If you've been curious about your own creativity, how to harness it, how to channel it, um, and how to get things done in the world, this conversation between yours truly and the one and only Adam Grant is something you are you should strap in because it's a doozy. Um, thanks a lot for tuning in. I'm going to get out of the way. But before we do, just a super quick word from our sponsor. Hey, oh, hey, uh, new sponsor alert. So this episode of Chase Jarvis Live is brought to you by Creative Live. And you all know, yeah, of course, I am the founder of that company. But I got to just be straight up. This is unequivocally, no questions asked, the best place in the world for creator and entrepreneurial education. I mean, Frankly, nothing even comes close, and it's the only one that's focused specifically on photography, design, video, art, music, craft, and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all those disciplines. It's where the best teachers in the world, where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best go to teach. So, of course, I'm biased, but I, I just encourage you to check it out because nothing else comes close and you will be on your way to join millions of other folks in our creative community there learning from the world's top experts okay that's it that's my soapbox that is the commercial and we'll hope to see you over creative life now let's get back to the show we are honored to have mr adam grant in the house adam welcome to the show thanks chase glad to be here appreciate you taking time out 
Uh, where are you broadcasting from this morning? Oh, the great city of Philadelphia. Ah, nice. Philadelphia. I've, it's been a while. It's been a while. Um, I want to say thanks again for having you on the show and uh, for being on the show, rather. And for anyone who is unfamiliar with your work, they've likely been living under a rock. But for the six or eight of the uh, couple thousand people that are tuned in, um, give a little bit of uh, a background on how you describe yourself. We, you know, the the bio is one thing, but how do you think of yourself, and what do you wake up thinking about uh, each morning? Uh, Chase, I struggled with, with this for years. I would I would get on an airplane, and someone would ask what I do, and I say, "Oh, I'm a, I'm a professor," and then they immediately sort of start scooching away, right? <laughs> and then I'd say, "Okay, I'm a psychologist," and then they they move even further away. And eventually I, I landed at, at being really specific, which is organizational psychologist. And the next question is always, what the heck is that? <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, I can't cure your OCD if you have it. I definitely cannot get your closet looking like Marie Kondo's. Um, basically, I, my mission is to study how we can make work suck a little bit less. And so I spend a lot of my time um, going into organizations and designing experiments to ask, how do we make a job more creative? Um, how do we make a team more collaborative? How do we even improve an organizational culture? So that's that's what I do every day. And is it safe to say that when you wrote originals, you had an end goal in mind? That was one of, that was of all of your work, uh, including something that just came out in the New York Times this past week that I definitely want to talk about. But I've consumed your work for for years. Uh, very inspirational. Uh, I, I want to know what. What so for those who have read originals, it's an amazing book. I, I recommend you check it out. Um, but I want to know. To me, that was some some like mind opening, very very ahead of time thinking. What was the goal, end goal, when you started writing that book? End goal of the book originals. Uh, I wish I could say my goal was for you to deliver that sentence because then I could say, okay, mission accomplished. I'm done. Jack, yeah, uh, just took a I've few years, it. right? Since two, 2017 or whatever. Uh, yeah, no, I, um, you know, I, I actually didn't have a very clear goal uh, in the sense that when I wrote my first book, Give and Take, I knew exactly what my thesis was. I had spent a decade gathering the evidence that I wanted to feature in it. And I felt like Originals was a chance to start not with an answer, but with a question. Um, and it really grew out of a, a few experiences that I had. The first one was being repeatedly asked by executives, how do I get better creative ideas from the people in my organization? Um, do I have to wait until you know, some startup comes up with a brilliant idea and then acquire it? Can't I grow creativity organically in my own workplace? And then on the flip side, I was running into the sort of the, the opposite of that problem in my classroom where I'd have undergrads and MBAs graduate they'd try to pitch creative ideas and then they get shot now. <laughs> okay, we, we, have, we have an issue that needs to be solved from both perspectives. We need to figure out what it takes for individuals to champion their best and boldest ideas. And then we also need to figure out how we can build organizational cultures where those ideas are really welcomed as opposed to silenced. And so Originals for me was a, an effort to, to really tackle those questions. And I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd kind of learned the hard way that it's, it can be really difficult uh, to advance creative ideas. And the more original your thoughts are, the more likely other people are often to reject them uh, because that's not the way we've always done things. Uh, or, you know, that's certainly not something I can imagine working around here. My favorite sentence, of course. <laughs> well, 
uh, again, as someone as a consumer of that and, and just someone who felt seen and heard. And while so many people uh, who are listening and watching are consider themselves solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, and maybe aren't in a large organization, so many of the same principles um, are, 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 are critical. And there's a, again, I, I try and talk to two different chunks of people who are identified as creators or entrepreneurs. The people who are trying to go from zero to one. The people for maybe in your world who um, who are have had their creative ideas swatted down from an early age and have sort of recoiled or um, scaled back their vision for themselves or their organization because of that, or the people who just discovered it or in some some arc of their journey and we want to amplify their creativity and further unleash these massive creative ideas. And so I'm wondering, you know, with through the lens of originals, what's some advice that you would share with those listening who are either in camp zero to one or camp one to 10? Help us help us unleash this side of ourselves that we've repressed or um, is um, needs to be amplified. Well, I, I think the place to start is is actually to go back to elementary school and say, look, you know, we we all were recognized as creative when we were kids. And at some point, a lot of us have had that beaten out of us. Right. I know there, there was a study that that kind of stopped me in my tracks that I read years ago that, that basically found that the most creative kid in the class was the least likely to be the teacher's pet um, because creative kids get annoying. And they're, they're, they're constantly sort of interrupting, raising their hand, taking you in a direction that you didn't want to go, challenging maybe the direction you do want to go. Um, and I think a, a lot of us learn to stop asking those questions, uh, which is obviously a mistake because when we grow up, uh, creativity actually is something that, that increasingly gets rewarded and, and makes people really valuable. So I think the, the first thing to avoid if, you know, if you're somebody who's already in that either zero to one position or, or one to ten is don't fall in love with your first idea. Uh, and I say that for a couple of reasons. One is we have a lot of evidence that your first ideas are often the most obvious ideas. That's why they came to mind first, because they were, they were very familiar um, and probably fairly adjacent to things that have already been done. Uh, it's usually when you've ruled out those obvious ideas that you're ready to identify something more unconventional, something more original. Um, and even then, uh, what you want to do is instead of just generating a few ideas, if you're you know, thinking about starting a company or launching a new product, instead of just generating a few, you want to generate at least 10 to 15 ideas. Um, when people increase the quality of their ideas uh, or when they want to increase the quality of their ideas, the easiest thing to do is to increase the quantity uh, because then, then you get more trips to the plate. You get to swing more bats and ultimately you have a better shot of <laughs> striking out, but also a better shot of, of getting a hit and landing on base. And, I have a, a former student, Justin Berg, who's now on the Stanford faculty. And Justin did this really interesting study where he asked people to take a pool of ideas they generated. And he said, rank them from favorite to least favorite. And then he tracked, okay, you know, is it your, is it your favorite idea that ultimately becomes the most creative? Um, and empirically, the answer was no. It turned out that your second favorite idea was your most promising one. Uh, that favorite idea, you're a little bit too close to it to see the flaws. Uh, whereas that second favorite idea, you have a little more distance from it. You can evaluate it more objectively, but you still have enough passion to pursue it. And Chase, when it, whenever I think about this evidence, I'm always afraid to share it because I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, somebody's going to game the system and say, wait, if I just take my favorite idea and rank it second, I'm good. Don't do that. 
I was already doing that in my mind. I confess. I was like, hmm, I wonder how much I'm trying to think about my best ideas. And I'm like, did I, I think I might've done some chess moves as soon as you start to see them being adopted by the market or the class or your boss or whatever. That's the fear. So don't game the don't system. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Sorry to interrupt. I had to, I, if I, sh- I could have muted my microphone, my laughing behind you, because it's just so true that the second one, second ideas are the best. That's a fascinating study though. And um, is it fair to say that that most of your research is data driven? Is it you know empirical or is it uh, how do you study these things? Because so many people think of creativity and the launch and of ideas and and uh, visions for a life, for a product, for an organization as this mystical cloud of stardust. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you think about it? And how do you study it? Uh, and for those people who are doubters or right now who are um, thinking about it, um, how can you um, give us something to hold on to. I'm so glad you asked that uh, because not all of us are smart enough to be philosophers. So <laughs> oh, <laughs> those of us who weren't, weren't quite eligible for that route, we were, okay, well, well, how do I come up with great insights if the thoughts just don't naturally come to my mind? I'm going to study other people's experiences and try to accumulate evidence about it. So yeah, I mean, I, I, as a social scientist, I feel like my job is to lead with evidence. Uh, and then change my answers and my questions based on the, the data that I collect. And so I'll give you an example from a, a creativity paper that I published with uh, Jim Barry a few years ago. Uh, so Jim and I were really interested in this puzzle of the relationship between intrinsic motivation and creativity. And it's been, it's been thought for centuries, right, that if you want to come up with new ideas, passion is the place to start. That when you enjoy your work uh, or you love the project that you're, you're pursuing or you're just really excited about the goal, Uh, then you're going to generate more novel ideas. And yet there was this conflicting evidence where when you surveyed people on their levels of intrinsic motivation, sometimes they were more creative as rated by their supervisors or even when you looked at their patent track records. And other times they weren't. Hmm. And you could even then see in controlled experiments, you would try to cultivate intrinsic motivation by giving people choices about what, what to work on or matching a task to their interests. And sometimes they would generate more creative ideas and other times they weren't. They wouldn't. And we were just kind of mystified by this, right? It's an intuitive idea that couldn't quite get backed by data. So we said, okay, first of all, what's, what's going wrong here? Well, what we think is missing from this story is a broader definition of creativity. Um, we know that creativity is generating ideas that are not only novel, but also useful, right? So if you're starting a business, you actually have to solve a problem for your customers. Um, if you're generating art, uh, you actually have to hit a quality metric. Uh, and so we, when we thought about that, we said, okay, maybe what intrinsic motivation does is it leads you to pursue really novel ideas because you're curious, but then you run into an idea selection challenge and you select the ideas that are most interesting to you as opposed to the ones that are most beneficial to your audience. And so we thought, okay, maybe another motivation is really important there, which is um, the desire to help others, being more of a giver than a taker. When you're thinking about, you know, okay, how can I serve other people with my business? How can I create art that people are going to appreciate? Um, maybe then you're going to add an extra filter. And when you've generated all these novel ideas, you're actually going to choose the most promising. So we wanted to study that. Uh, first thing we did was we actually went to uh, the U.S. military. And we got, yeah, it was a strange place to do this. But I wanted a place where we could find both intrinsic motivation, creative work, but also a very clear desire to help and serve. And so it, it seemed like we could pull that, that off there. So we surveyed people at a military base on how intrinsically motivated they were by their work and also how motivated they were to solve problems for others. And then we aggregated their their survey ratings on those metrics. Then we got their supervisors to rate their creativity. 
And we found it was only when you had both motivations in tandem, uh, that you were intrinsically motivated and you were motivated to help, that you got rated as more creative. And then we said, okay, that's, you know, that's nice correlational evidence, but does, does this combination of motivations really cause creativity? So then what we do is we design a randomized controlled experiment. Uh, we actually, Chase, we'll, we'll make you a participant in this experiment. Oh, geez. <laughs> okay. Lab okay, rat, so live, live rat, lab rat in progress here. Okay. We Happy need the, experience. yeah, we, we, we need a, we need a guinea pig. So here okay. you are. All right. So uh, you're going to, you're actually going to try to help a struggling band is the premise in the experiments. Okay. Uh, so we've, we've got a band. Uh, they're trying to figure out how to monetize their content. Um, unfortunately, we can't sell CDs the way we used to, and, and they're really struggling right now. Okay. And so then we basically send you off to the races to generate ideas. And we're going to have independent music experts rate how creative your solutions are, as well as some business experts too. And when we do that, what you don't know is we've randomly assigned you either to see the task as interesting or boring. Uh, we've given you a bunch of comments from people who were previously in the study talking about how awful this, <laughs> this problem was to solve and how frustrating and boring it was, or people who said, you know, this is actually a surprisingly interesting task. And then we also either let you, um, you have some choices about how you were going to solve it, or we put some constraints on you. So we manipulated how intrinsically motivated you might have felt. And then we also varied whether you might have felt empathy for the band's plight. Uh, either they were doing this as a hobby and they had day jobs, or this was their livelihood. And it turned out when we gave you some choices and made the task sound interesting, and we highlighted that the band was really in need, you were significantly more likely to generate creative ideas. And so we put those two studies together and we say, okay, maybe we're onto something. Mm, brilliant. So this combination um, of motivate uh, of like internal uh, passion and and providing value to others, if you do take that. Um, take on that with intention. Is that the goal of that, you know, the study, then we can say, okay, great. So Adam Grant told me that if I, you know, look at the areas that I'm most interested in and, you know, there, there's a lot of people have talked about this. Um, there's some Asian, uh, philosophical approaches. There's Chris Gillibo's like, you know, money flow and aptitude, you know, is there a place that it gives you buzz? Are you good at it? And, and will it provide, you know, value for you? Is it, is it your thesis then that, that you can be mechanical on this, that you can be tactical and it's like, okay, these are the areas of things that I love and boy, what, what, what sectors of the economy of uh, my audience of my fans or followers um, are, do they have a need and is it the literally the mechanical combination of these two things where the most fruitful ideas arise? I think so. I'm not. I'm not sure. I would be quite that. Um, yeah. Well, that's like, you know. I'm trying to play both I, ends I of the spectrum, and I'm yeah. guessing it's going to land somewhere in the middle here. I think so. I mean, I I think it's easy to reverse engineer creative projects and say yes, they involve a combination of these motivations. Uh, would I be that deliberate about it? I don't know. Um, I haven't been myself, and. By the way, Chase, I don't think anyone should do anything because Adam Grant told them to do it. Right? <laughs> I think they should do it because uh, they they believe the evidence and they've found the insights relevant to their life and they decided this is an experiment worth running and seeing, okay, does this pattern that seems to hold for several samples of people also hold for me? Very, um, hum very humble of you and scientific <laughs> at the same time. I like it. 
I, I just feel like there should be a don't try this at home warning <laughs> on, on anything you take out of social science, right? Because it's, uh, it's never clear how it's going to apply to the individual case. But I think that, yeah, I always think of this E.B. White line uh, that I, I thought was so profound. He said, I wake in the morning torn between a desire to enjoy the world and a desire to improve the world. And this makes it difficult to plan the day. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've felt that in a huge part of my work life. Well, do I want to do what's interesting or do I want to do what's helpful? And I think the, the conclusion of our research here was you actually don't want to create that false dichotomy. You want to say, okay, I want to find something that's interesting that's also useful. And I think that I, I like the kind of the stage progression of this to say, okay, start with what's interesting to you. Otherwise, you're not going to care. Um, and once you've found a bunch of problems that you're excited about, now apply that filter and say, okay, what's the, the likely impact on others? Um, the other way I've thought about this, Chase, is to say, okay, if you, know, if you take the creative problems you're already solving, it's worth just asking who would be worse off if you weren't doing your job today? And the people that you name are the reason that your work has meaning and value to others. And so you want to then start thinking about, okay, how do the creative ideas that I'm developing potentially serve that group of people? Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And I like it. It's a little decision tree almost. And and I think if you if you started out with how do I help the most people, it's prob that the likelihood of it being an area of interest or passion to you, you know, maybe it's like a go hunker down in a malaria lab somewhere or something versus the other way around. So, you know, again, I think a lot of what we're talking about now is really for this group of zero to one people who are listening. And I wrote a book called Creative Calling. And in this, I try and help people understand that creativity is more than just popsicle sticks and pipe cleaners and glitter and the stuff we were taught in second grade. Yet, definitively, as you said, if you walk into any second grade class and you say, who wants to come to the front of the room and draw me a picture, every hand goes up. So this gives us a good framework for those folks who are still doubting. I call them creative curious. And there are a lot of people uh, listening and watching right now who would classify themselves as that. I want to I want to now shift the conversation to a little bit of the people who have tapped into that thing. Now they're buying what we're selling here in this conversation. And how do we get them to double and triple down on the things that they are experimenting with? And by that, I want to get into creative process, because I think so much of creativity is sitting down and doing the work. Even if the work is something that you enjoy, I think it's fair to classify it as work. And Mm-hmm. To me, the best way to investigate this is investigate your creative process because there's what you write and what you say, and then there's what you do. And Uh-oh. so, and so in the same way that you <laughs> you're going to look on, for the, the hypocrisy there, aren't you? <laughs> That's one way of putting it, but I want to understand through your own creative process, how do you, how do you get up every day, navigate that EB white line and um, put words on paper uh, and put, you know, um, creative ideas into action. What's Adam Grant's creative process? For example, use originals or, you know, any of any of your your books or your writing or your however, you know, you know, the definition of creativity for you. Show us how you go to work applying your own principles. It's, it's such an interesting question. Uh, I'm usually spending so much time thinking about how do I study and then learn from other people's creative processes that I haven't, I actually have not given this enough thought, but I can, I can walk you through how it often unfolds. Yeah. Let's, so, we'll, I think it's called, um, what is it? Uh, evidence or scientifically, it would be a better uh, data. We'll look at, at the data of your daily experiences. 
Let's uh, let's give it a try. So <laughs> let me. Um, okay, let, let's actually take a, a fun example that I, I worked on earlier this year. So um, a few years ago, I, I gave a TED talk on originals, and one of my points uh, was that sometimes people who procrastinate a little bit are more creative than people who don't. And a lot of people were excited by this, I think, because they thought I was I was basically licensing the vice that it was ruining so much of their life, saying, no, actually, that thing that you thought was horrible, this is a good thing, which was not my intent. My intent was to say, look, we all are human. We all procrastinate sometimes. And there are moments when if we reframe that uh, as, you know, sort of necessary incubation, uh, that it might actually be conducive to creativity. And instead of beating ourselves up, then we just kind of let it. We let it happen, um, but I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go so far as to tell people that procrastination was a good thing. And I kept getting questions then from chronic procrastinators about how do I solve my procrastination. And so that started a new creative process for me, which was to say, okay, what do we actually know about how to tackle procrastination? Uh, how do we prevent it? How do we get people to feel better about it, do less of it, uh, and get maybe more out of themselves? So that seemed to me to be a, a perfect topic to take on in my, my podcast work life. So I went to the team and I said, okay, we're, we're getting ready to kick off season three. Uh, I've been you know, talking about procrastination and the, sort of how it hurts productivity, but it can sometimes unlock creativity. I feel like I owe it to my audience as an organizational psychologist to also say something about how to procrastinate less. And the team said, we think this would be a really fun topic. Uh, so where do we start? Well, we, what we need is somebody who is an amazingly talented person who also has really grappled with procrastination uh, because that's the person who can probably teach the rest of us how to, how to deal with that. So then my next step was basically to, to do a bunch of Googling and also reach out to a bunch of people I knew in different creative fields and ask them, okay, uh, what do, what, when you think about chronic procrastinators who are still remarkably successful, who comes to mind? And the most common name I got from my sources and Google was Margaret Atwood. And I thought, okay, The Handmaid's Tale was, was pretty successful <laughs> last I checked. <laughs> uh, let's find out, does she really procrastinate? And so that, then my next step was to, to interview her and you know, ask her about her experience. And then to start digging into the research and ask, what do we know about procrastination? And what are the big surprises? And for me, the, the big aha moment was when I read a bunch of research suggesting that procrastination is not a time management problem. That was just eye-opening to me. It's like, wait, I thought the whole problem was people use their time inefficiently. And the data say, no, it's actually an emotion management problem. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, that's the beginning of an idea. Now I need to understand the, the emotions that drive procrastination in more depth. I need to gather some of my own data and conduct some experiments. I need to talk to some researchers and read some more studies. And then I'm going to try to put together a framework to explain how we can fight procrastination. So that's a, maybe a window into the creative process. Is that what you were looking for? Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I think that's also very, it's conceptual. Like you, you see the linear nature of it. Uh, I don't know. Linear is probably not the right word, but uh, the steps I'll say. Um, interesting side, side note about Margaret Atwood. I photographed her as well. And, and I, of course uh, you did. Not, I, I, not as, I guess, Similar but different. Related question, I will say. I was like, you have just had the most prolific career, unbelievable success. And this is um, before Handmaid's Tale was a, a movie or show, you know, whatever the uh, when they when they translated it to the big screen. And one of my wife's favorite books, we've we've talked about it since early, early on in a relationship. I think she's obviously spectacular. And I said, can you give me a secret? Like, what's the secret? She I mean. 
you know, we're in a crowded studio, you know, big lights and stuff. She walks over to me and whispers in my ear, no kidding. This is, I drink blood. <laughs> and then walks away like it was normal and goes back. And I'm, I'm like, I'm looking around. Did anyone hear that? Or is that just for me? And to this day, and then she winks at me. And to this day, I mean, I don't know if she's trying, I don't know what she was doing, but obviously incredibly prolific, but away from Margaret Atwood for a second, I think it's interesting that you chose her to do your research, but now let's put a closer lens on your own process. So that was about research. I want to know now, if you would share with us what your daily practices, because that's, you know, rather conceptual. I do some research and then I dig a little deeper and then I find a subject and then I talk to some people. How do you actually put words on paper? How do you work with your team on, on podcast? Are you morning, midday? Are you nine to five? What's talk to us about the detail of your prog, your process. So this is actually something I've changed recently. Uh, so Ooh. I'm a morning person. Juicy. Okay. I th- I can't yeah. Wait. I mean, I, I thought as a morning person, I should do my creative work in the morning because that's when I'm most alert. And then I read some research suggesting that we're actually more creative when we're off our circadian rhythm. Um, and at first, this, this is really strange. You're saying when I'm a little bit foggier and you know, kind of maybe even a little tired, I'm supposed to be more creative. How does that work? And then when I dug into the research, what, what kind of stuck for me was when I'm most alert is also when I'm most linear and most structured. And it's now what I like to do when I'm starting a creative project tomorrow is tonight after our kids go to bed. I'll spend half an hour brainstorming. And what will happen in many cases is I'll end up thinking about things that are completely unrelated to the project at hand. Um, And sometimes those will end up being completely useless. And other times they'll be very relevant to the work that I was planning. Um, But I notice I I have more eureka moments uh, at night than I do in the morning. And so now there's this warm up window at night. Uh, I'll start uh, when I'm writing, for example, uh, I'll read a, a biography of a person or of an industry that I'm interested in digging into more. And I will deliberately read that at night because I know the wheels are going to start turning and I might see a connection to something I'm going to start working on tomorrow morning. And then what I'll do in the morning is uh, I'll get up, have breakfast uh, with my wife and kids. And then um, basically when they start school, my workday begins. Uh, And I will sit down and start writing until I either run out of words or I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then, uh, and then the, the process continues. No hangry creators in our midst here. Um, what What is that window? Is that uh, 60 minutes, 90 minutes? Usually if you look backwards and tally the data, are you creative for you know 250 words, which takes you 10 minutes? Or do you really sit down and um, is is uh, your first meal at noon? Like what, what, what is the window of creativity for you? I actually don't find most of my writing windows that creative in part because a lot of my writing is sort of executing a vision for a creative idea that's already been fleshed out. And so, you know, it might be, it might be explaining a study or it might be unpacking, you know, the psychology of why people procrastinate. And so once I figured out the insight that I want to deliver, I feel like the, you know, the, the writing is sometimes a little bit more, it's more linear in, in some cases. Um, I think a good writing window for me lasts two to three hours. Mm. Uh, I, before we had kids, sometimes I would write for eight or 12 hours at a time. That's less likely now. Uh, but I've, I've always been somebody who gets into flow pretty easily. Uh, I remember reading the, the first three Harry Potter books uh, when they, actually when my younger sister finally convinced me to, to read them. Uh, I think I was, uh, it must have been the summer after my freshman year of college. 
And I love the first one so much that I read the next two in the same weekend. And then I had this sinking realization that Hogwarts wasn't real at the end. I got gotten so <laughs> deeply embedded in the story that I forgot Wait a that minute. there were Wait no wizards. <laughs> Uh, which was a very strange experience that no one else uh, I, that I've met has had. But um, for me, it was it was kind of an illustration of the fact that I have very high attentional filters. Um, and I guess I've known this since at least college when my, my roommates would sometimes throw parties um, in my room and I wouldn't even notice because I'm just locked in like brain claw connected to the computer. And so what that's meant for me is, um, you know, the, the writing process or the creative process can be a pretty extended time. But my problem is, is often that I start with something that's, you know, that's not that creative. And so I have to force myself to do the opposite of what procrastinators do. I have to lower my, my attentional filters and let unrelated and irrelevant ideas in. Wow. That is fascinating. Is it? Yeah. Like, well, you're, you're flipping the script on what so many other, you know, again, the problem that I think is so popular. And this is, you know, part of what we want to do in the show is dispel these common myths of creativity um, and help everyone understand that it's, that's for them. And it's a, it's a natural state for us humans. You mentioned, speaking of states, you mentioned flow. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about flow, how, how, what you've seen in your work and your personal experience. Cause I know that's a, that's sort of the, um, the gold in most creative processes when you can grab onto that rope and, and you just, you know, you just uh, go so to speak. So what have you seen in your research and in your own personal experiences about flow, flow states, how it relates to creativity? So I think the, I guess the first thing I would say, Chase, on flow is there's something that really bothered me when I first read Csikszentmihalyi's book. And I, I love the concept. I'm a huge fan of his work. It was actually one of the reasons I became a psychologist. But oh, wow. I couldn't quite recognize, I, I couldn't reconcile the sort of, two of the claims in, um, in that work. So we all know what a flow state feels like, right? We, we, we get so absorbed in the tasks that we lose track of time and place and maybe even a sense of self. Uh, and I think we, all we want to know is how do we get there, right? What, what brings us into flow? And Csikszentmihalyi's theory says there's a combination of, of challenge and skill that works in an ideal way, right? So you want to be stretched to the edge of your abilities. And that's really when you're going to get totally focused on the problem or the task at hand. But then he goes on to report that one of the most common flow experiences is driving a car. And I don't know about you, but most <laughs> yeah. of the time I spend in traffic is not challenging. Right? It's <laughs> way below the level of my Mario Kart ability. So I, I looked at that and I just I couldn't, I couldn't make sense of it. Of it. And then uh, a colleague of mine, Ryan Quinn, uh, did a, a really neat study of, um, of flow in um, in, he did actually in two kinds of organizations. He studied um, national security technology development where you had nuclear physicists uh, trying to, to solve some of the most complex problems in the world. And then he also studied flow and knowledge work with daily deadlines, with journalists in newsrooms, uh, trying to find flow as they were constantly interrupted. And what he did was he surveyed people um, kind of hour by hour on their flow experiences. And then he looked, instead of just comparing, okay, Chase, we're going to look at how much flow you feel and then how much I feel and then try to figure out why you're in flow and I'm not, he did it with in-person study and said, okay, what are the drivers of you having flow moments versus not getting into flow in a given day? And he found that challenge skill balance wasn't that important. What really mattered was goal clarity and feedback clarity. That what, what got people into flow states was knowing exactly what they were trying to accomplish uh, and kind of beginning with some end in sight. 
and then knowing along the way whether they're making progress and whether they're getting closer to or further from the goal. And I think this is one of the reasons that so many people have trouble getting into flow when they're writing yeah. is they don't know what they're trying to accomplish and they can't figure out if it's any good while they're doing it. Is that why uh, constraints, you know, the way I talk about it, it's constraints create creativity? Is that is that related? Does that have to do with that sort of end in mind and some some guidelines? Do you think those are related? I do. I think that the kind of constraints you're talking about, they basically they give us artificial attentional filters. Uh, so they they help us say, okay, some of the things that are crossing my mind right now are not that relevant. Nope, I don't need to pay attention to that email right now. I'm just going to keep going right here. Um, there's a there was a d- dissertation years ago by Keneal Joyce at Berkeley. Uh, she studied what she called the blank page effect. And she found that without constraint, people couldn't solve creative problems. But also with too much constraint, people ended up getting sort of locked into familiar and obvious solutions. And there was a sweet spot where you wanted some constraints, but not too many, so that people were both focused and flexible. And I think that's uh, that's probably something we're all looking for. Yeah. And again, there's this, the it's I think it's toxic for creativity at large to have this idea of a blank page or the, the artist, I'm going to do what I'm going to do today versus <laughs> actually having an end in mind. And it does a little bit go back to that, you know, the, the earlier part of our discussion where it's like, how, what is a, something that I'm good and passionate at and something that benefits others. And there's a, there's a, you know, there's a lane there. Um, you mentioned this as an artificial um, filter. I think the word artificial is interesting because what is what's real and what's artificial in this world. Um, can you explain what you meant by artificial? Is it just that it's it's maybe it's I don't know. I'll let you you answer the question. It's tripping me out a little <laughs> bit right now, though. I, so I think what I I'm not entirely sure what I was trying to get at when I said that. But if I tried to formulate a hypothesis now in hindsight, I think one thing I've always struggled with uh, in creative work is knowing what's relevant and what's not. Uh, I think, you know, I've, I, you know, on one extreme of this, I've constantly said, you know what, I'm not going to read too much outside of the literature that I'm trying to learn from right now, because I want to be really clear about what I'm trying to understand and, and solve. And so if, you know, if I'm trying to do a podcast episode on procrastination, I don't want to get distracted by, you know, my curiosity about why people are such terrible micromanagers <laughs> when they, you know, when they manage teams. Um, and yet, it's very possible that something in the micromanagement literature might be relevant to procrastination, right? And so, you know, where to set the, that boundary is really complex. And you see this over and over in the lifetimes of highly creative people. So my, my favorite example would be da Vinci. Uh, if you think about da Vinci's plight, he wrote over and over again in his notebook, tell me if anything ever was done. Uh, he constantly felt unproductive. He felt like he was failing because he was always getting distracted from, you know, from yesterday's project to pursue today's curiosity. And so, you know, one day he's supposed to be working on the Mona Lisa. And then he starts to wonder about how light strikes a sphere. And guess we won't be painting this year because I'm going to be studying optics. Uh, And, you know, that that random walk ended up changing the way that he modeled light as a painter uh, and gave us some of his greatest uh, artistic achievement, which you know much more about than I do as a photographer. but he also had other diversions that didn't solve any problems for him, right? Like his curiosity about why the woodpecker's tongue is like three times longer than it should be anatomically. Um, and it, it became an interesting fact, but it didn't ever solve a problem for him. And so I think this is one of the fundamental tensions of creative life is we need to create an artificial boundary uh, because any idea is potentially relevant, 
But if we consider all of them, we're never going to make any progress. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. But I'm looking at questions coming in. And just as a reminder, we are live and there are people tuned in from all over the world. We've got South Africa. We've got uh, Scandinavia. I see Oslo and Copenhagen in the house. Um, so of the people tuning in from all over the world who are saying thank you, they, a lot of people loving originals, loving Plan B. Um, I want to go real practical here. And a question from Naveen Khan. I'm a designer and this show is exactly what I'm looking for. I do find myself stuck in a creative block and therefore I'm procrastinating. I want to come across, hopefully in a, 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 a what does he say? I hopefully want to come across a good idea. Now let's get out of academia for a second and just put Adam in a room with Naveen and what is the advice that you give him? So the first thing I want to know is why Naveen is stuck. Right. So if we if we break down procrastination, you're not being lazy. This is over and over again what we see. In fact, a lot of the stuff you do while you're procrastinating requires a huge amount of effort. Right. If you've ever cleaned your entire you're, house you're, from top to bottom. Was gonna, you're talking to me right now. I will do everything instead of the task at hand. Yeah. Exactly. And that requires energy, right? So yeah. stop attributing it to laziness. Uh, Margaret Atwood claims she's lazy. She's not. Sorry, Margaret. Um you have to recognize that we procrastinate when there, there are negative emotions that we associate with the task, right? So, you know, for me, it's boredom. I cannot stand filling out expense reports, um, proofreading, just one of the least interesting tasks I could ever do. Um, and so I avoid those tasks because I don't like the emotional state that they put me in. For other people, they might procrastinate because they're afraid that they can't solve a complex problem or they, they think the challenge is too daunting. Um, and you know, whatever that negative emotion is that drives your procrastination, um, you want to figure out how you can change it, right? So if you discover that the project seems too complex and that's why you're putting it off, then your first question is, okay, how do I simplify it? You might break it into parts. You might bounce some of your ideas off someone who you think is more knowledgeable than you or comes at it from a fresh perspective. Um, if you find it really boring, which is kind of a, a daily challenge for me when I, I take on projects I don't want to do. Um, I try to find ways to, to reward myself for doing them, right? So I'll, I'll give myself the chance to watch a favorite show on Netflix uh, if I've, you know, if I finished a project by, by 12 o'clock that I didn't want to do. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll actually call up someone who is really entertaining and just say, hey, can we sit on the phone and chat while I, I go over this document? Uh, because otherwise I'm going to fall asleep. I'm so bored by it. Um, and I, I don't know that there's a one size fits all solution for anyone, but once you pinpoint the emotions that are causing you to put, put your work off, you can start to try to, to at least manage them, if not control them. I love the, the emotion. I've never heard that, the connection to um, how it makes you feel. Um, one thing I did notice, and uh, I want to um, get your comment here if this is the way that you think about it or if this is just um, me applying my beliefs to a set of data that you're sharing here is everything you said both about your own uh, process and uh, how to get unstuck was about doing. And what I find is most people, they try and think their way out of it. I talk about, you know, it action over intellect. And I just, you know, is that what you've seen in the research or is this me applying my, my own filter or my own um, uh, experience to to how to get unstuck or how to uh, elevate and actuate your creativity? 
I, I can't disagree with you there, Chase. And I know you wanted me to. Not I did. I wanted you to be so bad. I was like, oh, I'm going to get into it with Adam Grant about how to how to get unstuck. But clearly, no. No, no. I think I th- I've, I've seen this over and over again. You know, in the research, one of the best predictors of creativity is, is the proactive personality, which is basically being a doer. Uh, you know, sort of following the Milton Berle principle of when opportunity doesn't knock, you build a door. Um, and I think, yeah, a lot of a lot of procrastination, a lot of getting stuck is just people saying, okay, you know, I haven't quite figured out what I want to say yet or how I want to express my idea or what my solution is. Great, run the experiment, right? Start writing some words. They might be garbage. Uh, Margaret Atwood had a great line on this. She said, the waste paper basket is your friend. Write something horrible, throw it away. No one will ever know. And I think we're... There's something about generating creative work um, that evokes fear. Like if I if I put down a stupid thought, or you know I, I produce something that's half baked, then I'm a failure. Well, get over yourself, right? You know, yeah. You, it's not up to you to judge the quality of your own work. That's up to your audience. And the more you get into the rhythm of just putting stuff out there, even for your own consumption, the easier it is then to continue to improve your skills. So true. A mutual friend of ours, Seth Godin. Uh, he's really articulate on this point. It's like, oh, you're you're a, a stuck writer. Show me all of your terrible writing. And what he finds, and I think is really revelatory about this, is the uh, or Anne Lamont's shitty first drafts. Yes, there are none for people who are stuck. And I think you know that continues to reinforce this idea that it's only through the doing that you can sort of uncover the layers of the onion and get to the the best stuff. And that is, unfortunately, you know, we go to Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours and, or, you know, all of the Anne Lamont shitty first drafts. And most people who are stuck, they're stuck because they're in their own head. Now, if we can take that and let's just run a, run a, uh, a thought experiment for a second is then just doing work any kind of non-specific, just grinding it out, writing on anything. Is that really, is that, that then become the key? And I'm taking this to an extreme because it's the opposite of doing nothing, right? Um, you know, the, the fabled experiment uh, in the ceramics class of this half of the class has to make one pot. This half yeah. of the class is graded on making as many pots as they possibly can. Is it really just the indiscriminate making that is the solution for getting unstuck? I think, yes, sort of, probably. With a few well, no, no, I mean, I guess now that I'm, I'm listening to my own question, it does sort of go back to that, the Venn diagram that you're working on earlier. It's like, there is a filter that you have to apply. Is it, is it doing good for others? But, yeah. you know, for people who are stuck, that's not really, it's the, the inability to discern whether this is going to be useful for some or the right people or whatever. Um, but I'm just trying to get, you know, I'm trying to get to the guts yeah. of this thing is just the doing, you know, the, the, is, is shitty first drafts really the key? Yes. Yeah, I think so. So what I would say is we need to get away from nouns and word verbs, right? Yeah. I think to your point, people who call themselves writers or artists, um, that's, that's an identity you earn after you've written, after you've painted. Uh, and I think that there's, there's actually some evidence showing that if you are a writer who loves the idea of being a writer, but you don't actually enjoy the process of typing words, then you don't get very far. 
And so I think it's worth paying attention to not just are you in love with the product or the outcome as a consumer, but do you enjoy the act of producing using the medium that you've chosen to express your creativity in? And if the answer is no, you either need to figure out how to enjoy it. Um, and sometimes that changes by you know, shifting your topic or your tools, or maybe you're currently expressing yourself in the wrong medium. Um, I think that the, for me, the, the thing that really resonates about what you just said is it's a mistake to, to edit while you create, right? The, the process of generating ideas requires us to be non-judgmental. It requires us to, you know, to sort of pursue things that might not work. And so the idea of them being discerning and evaluative and critical in that same mental space, um, those two mindsets don't really go hand in hand. And so I think every great writer I know uh, has learned at some point in their career that it's helpful to have a couple hours a day blocked out to write and then some other time blocked out to edit, refine, improve, discard. Uh, and I think you can start with 15 minutes on that, right? Take 15 minutes in the morning to write or to create, and then take 15 minutes in the evening to evaluate, and then flip those two and see how both versions of the experiment go, and then build on that. I love your scientific approach to this stuff. And uh, it just, it's, it really is revelatory. Um, I want to go back to uh, something we were talking about right before we went live, uh, something that was, I found really intriguing because we are it's uh you know mid-may here when we're recording this 2020 and we're in the middle of a pandemic and for many you know i think creativity is one of the things that can help us keep from going nuts during this time i'm trying to you know we at creative live are trying to and we're seeing a, a increase in consumption and an increase in interest and in new you know new people coming to the platform and i use that as a as a lens to say, maybe creativity is actually super valuable here, but we also know that there are a lot of people who are stuck and they're stuck for all kinds of different reasons, financial peril, frustration, um, worry, sickness. There's, there's lots of reasons. You wrote a piece, uh, a column in the New York times. Um, so good. It just came out last Friday, I think. And it was about building resilience in isolation. I'm wondering if you can, um, Give us some of the nuggets and and uh, the the what you what you uh, landed on in your concept of how to build resilience in this time. Uh, happy to give it a whirl. Uh, thanks for reading it. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you didn't hate it. No, it was brilliant. <laughs> it was brilliant. That's a high bar. But uh, so the, the the quick backstory is: as soon as the pandemic started. I started getting listeners in my work work life podcasts uh, just reaching out through every channel that I have, saying, "Can you please do an episode on remote work?" And at first, eh, I, don't, I don't know how much we have to say that's interesting or novel, and I think we're going to get tired of talking about this. And then it became very clear that this was a struggle for a lot of people in a lot of ways. Lots of new research was coming out, and this was not going away anytime soon. So I decided to do it. I thought, okay, I want to I want to say something different and original about remote work, uh, and we're going to end the work life season with an episode on it. So, who can I call that's done more remote work than almost anyone in history? And my first thought was an astronaut. Uh, so I reached out to Scott Scott Kelly, who'd done 340 days in space, uh, which is an American record. <laughs> okay, Scott, how did you get through that? And, Talk about I mean, isolation, if, right? <laughs> my gosh, I mean, you're on the space station with a few other people, and uh, it doesn't immediately sound like a creative job. But Scott had to fix the toilet. 
because uh, as he put it, you can't use the neighbors <laughs> or, or go find a tree if your toilet breaks down in space. Uh, you know, he had to execute all these complex missions uh, in domains of science that, that he hadn't been you know, really trained or specialized in. Um, and he had to be prepared to solve any kind of problem. And so it's, it's obviously a place where you need a ton of creativity. And so I wanted to know, how did he stay focused? How did he stay resilient? How did he stay creative during that year in space? And it didn't really hit me until after the conversation when I was starting to, to think through what I wanted to share in the episode. Um, what Scott did a ton of was time travel. And this was at first really disappointing to me because I was hoping it would be real time travel. <laughs> but sadly, NASA has not cracked that one yet. So instead, we got mental time travel. Um, almost everything Scott talked about flew in the face of the typical mindfulness advice that we get, which is live in the moment, be in the present, seize the day. And Scott's point was basically, look, you know, when you're in outer space and every day is Groundhog Day, sometimes the day just sucks. And so the last place you want to be is in the here and now. And so what, what Scott had done is something we study in psychology is mental time travel to say, look, you know, when the moment is not that pleasant or if it's uncertain, then what you want to do is fast forward mentally to imagine the future, rewind mentally to reflect on the past, um, and even imagine uh, being in a parallel universe and say, okay, what if my life played out differently? And each of those places that you could travel mentally uh, has a different emotional benefit, which we could talk about. But I just thought that was such a cool idea to say, okay, you, you can't really change the present, but you can shift where you focus your attention and if you focus a little bit more on the future and the past and alternate realities, the present gets a little better. That's one of the things that you just nailed why I was so intrigued by the article. My wife, uh, Kate, is a meditation and mindfulness teacher. And uh -oh. did, yeah, it was, did I make it her was, mad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's she's listening right now, tapping her fingers. Uh, no, I, 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 but I think to, that was really what captured my attention in that. And, um, what you said at the end, though, is it, it sort of does come back to making now a little bit different. And you said there were some different emotions. Are you willing to go into some of those? Yeah, uh, yeah, let's do it. So, so emo I, emotions yeah. connected to, to each. Um, you pick emotions that are connected to each of those, you know, past, future, and then again, finishing with now. When I so when I think about future, that's that's the first place that I go is to say, okay. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know when or how this pandemic is going to end, but we know that it is going to end. And so by starting to imagine, what are you going to do in that first week when this is over? Um, it builds hope and it builds excitement. Uh, and Scott, Scott Kelly's version of this going to space was he said, look, I've been on three missions before, uh, but I've never been in space this long. And so my goal, I have an emotional goal. I want to come back to Earth with the same energy and enthusiasm that I started. What a great goal for all of us to adopt, right? To say, I want to have the same energy around my work and my life at the end of this pandemic that I did before we, we got thrown into it. And then you can start to reverse engineer, okay, what do I need to do day to day as part of my routine in order to get to that mental space? And I do think that builds hope and excitement because it gives you an exciting future to look forward to. Um, and it also helps you sort of mark, okay, day by day. Am I, you know, am I taking the time and building the habits that I need to, you know, to stay energized? Uh, so that's the future. And then the past, I think rewinding to the past, it depends on what kind of past moments you're thinking about. If you go to positive moments, what you get is nostalgia typically. And people avoid that. They think, you know, 
the literal translation of nostalgia from the Greek roots is the pain of not being able to return to the past. And that sounds kind of awful, except that's not how it feels. Most people, if you look at the randomized controlled experiments, when they reflect on a nostalgic moment, they get happier, they feel less lonely, they also become more helpful because our nostalgic moments are connected moments and they remind us to reconnect. And so I think there's power there. If you go to a a negative memory of the past, uh, you've got a couple options. One is gratitude, uh, right? Things have potentially been worse in some ways in other times in your life. And so you realize, you know what? This is a horrible situation for everyone, but it could always get worse. Um, And then your other option is you learn from your own past uh, resilience and say, look, you know what? I've never been through a pandemic, but I've definitely faced adversity in my life. And maybe some of the lessons that I learned when I went through job loss or when I lost a loved one, um, maybe some of those lessons are applicable in the here and now. Um, And then there's the, the alternate reality of saying, okay, you know what? My wife and I have been talking with our kids a bunch about what it would be like if we lived in 1918. We would not have the internet. We would not have phones. We would not be able to record the show. <laughs> we would not, I, we wouldn't have access to Instacart. Uh, we, we just made a long list of all the luxuries that we're so lucky to have that are making life e- easier. And we didn't even get to evidence-based medicine yet. The fact that you know there, there's at least progress toward vaccines and treatments that couldn't have existed a hundred years ago. And so I think just imagining those alternate timelines and being part of them uh, is, is one of the ways you really instill that sense of gratitude. It's funny how gratitude is such a powerful vehicle in so many different walks of life and so many different times. It's this utility for framing, uh, for framing so much. I want to shift for a second though. I've I've been uh, on my list of things to talk to you about um, is intuition and you're such a scientist and intuition is so squishy. Um, I've written a lot about it. I experience it. I, I try and train my own body's ability to override my rational mind and trust in the gut. But as someone who is a scientist, uh, how do do you struggle to point at intuition? How do you reconcile the power of intuition, especially around creativity and, you know, doing what we want and need to do with this one precious life we're given? How do you reconcile those two things? Do you ground it in science? Do you just cast it away? I'm dying to know. This is my Adam Grant question. How do you reconcile the power uh, or the myth, to be neutral here, of intuition? Such, that's such an interesting question, Chase. Uh, I think if I were a philosopher for like you, I would probably say I don't reconcile them. <laughs> it's a paradox. And I try to, I try to live with, with both worlds and, and get the best of each of them. I am not a philosopher. I'm a psychologist. And so uh, I'll give you a slightly different take, which is I I really like the way that you've written and talked about intuition. Um, I like the fact that you're actually taking some of the squish out of it and trying to, um, in some ways, uh, if not deconstruct, at least better understand how the process works. And when I get nervous as a social scientist is whenever somebody says, trust your gut. Well, I don't know about you, my gut's been wrong a lot of times in my life. That's why I do science, right? Because I want to find out when my intuition is is incorrect. Um, What I like to do is instead say, test your gut, right? I think um, when I think about intuition, what it really means to me is it's subconscious processing, right? It's it's not magic. Um, What it is, is it's a set of patterns that you've detected below the level of your conscious awareness. And so what I want to do then is try to make the subconscious conscious. 
I want to figure out what patterns my intuition has detected and then test them out in the world and see whether the patterns of the past really map onto the future. I, this, is, this is something I was really intrigued by when I was writing originals because one thing I saw consistently is that entrepreneurs who relied on their intuition were very successful in the domain where they had a lot of experience. But when they shifted to a new domain, their intuition often led them astray. It's like, um, like Steve Jobs betting on the Segway <laughs> as the future of transportation. <laughs> it's like, if you could talk to Steve Jobs, what you want to do is you want to sit him down and say, listen, you obviously know computers and software better than probably anyone on the planet in terms of how to make those beautiful and user-friendly. Uh, your knowledge of how to transport people from one place to another and how cities and roads are going to work in the future is probably not developed to a point where you can trust your intuition yet. And so that's a, you know, that's a great moment to say, okay, let me develop some hypotheses. Let me test my intuition about whether the Segway is going to take over the future of transportation uh, as opposed to just following it blindly. And that's what I'd like to see all of us do. By far the best by far the best answer I've ever heard to that question. And the specific example of Steve Jobs trusting his intuition in an area where he has an immense amount of expertise and the highlighting of the uh, the really poor prediction of the power of the Segway. Um, it's beautiful. How do we know then? The follow-on question is what we're proficient in or what we're not, where we can trust our intuition where we can't, because maybe Steve Jobs thought he was a transportation infrastructure expert. How do we, how yeah. do, what's, what's the next level of the onion here? That's a great question. Um, I think the, the sad reality is we're never going to know in a given situation. Uh, we're, we're always going to be guessing, and that's part of the fun of creativity. It's also part of the challenge of creativity. I think, though, there are a few heur heuristics that might be helpful. So the first one that I would consider is how stable versus turbulent is the world that you're applying your intuition to. Uh, Danny Kahneman and Gary Klein have, have shown this now a number of times, that basically intuition is reliable in stable domains. In volatile domains, it's not. And so if you're a firefighter and you're used to, you know, there are only three different ways a certain kind of building can burn, and you've been in thousands of those buildings, you can trust your intuition uh, if you know the building was designed the same way, right? If, on the other hand, you're a stockbroker um, and markets can fail and companies can fall in an infinite number of ways, then you probably don't want to assume that the patterns that you, know, that you saw in 2013 are going to be the same in 2023. Um, so I think just paying attention to the, the stability versus dynamism of the world that you're operating in is, is the first step to take. And then the second is to ask about your level of expertise. Uh, I think what a lot of people assume is that more expertise is better. And yet there's some work by Eric Dane and his colleagues showing that uh, there's a problem that we get, uh, that we run into when we have too much expertise. Uh, and especially when we have too much familiarity with the field, it's called cognitive entrenchment. And the idea behind cognitive entrenchment is when, when you're really steeped in your domain, sometimes you take for granted assumptions that need to be questioned. And there seems to be a sweet spot in terms of depth of experience where you know enough about the field to really speak the language, but you also are still fresh enough that you say, hey, wait a minute, like, why, why is it? that when we put together a, um, you know, a taxi company, like why, why, why do we have to wait for them to drive by? Like what, if, what if we just had an app that allowed us to call them and come to us? Um, and you know, nobody running a taxi company would have really pursued that in part because they're entrenched in a particular model of, you know, of how to transport people. Um, and it, it takes a little bit of an outsider to really think of that problem and say, huh, 
maybe we could use technology to approach that in a much more efficient way. Uh, so I think we just we need to be careful that to say, okay, you know, the the more that your intuition is developed based on experience and expertise, um, the more that you can trust it, and also the more you should distrust it as uh, as you start to think about how the world is going to change. All right, last question on this line of thinking here, and um, I have a a theory about this, and I want you to throw rocks at it, or you can take the easy path out and just agree, as you already have once on this conversation, or you can throw rocks at my theory. I'm dying to know what you think about this. And it is through mastery of just first, initially, of course, one thing, because mastery is, a, you know, mastery of a topic, of a language, of a, um, a profession, whether it's photography or design or um, computer science, whether it's 10,000 hours, I've, I've often said, if you have to ask if you've mastered something, you haven't. Um, but for those of you, if in your case, teaching at Wharton, I think it's be it's fair to say that you've mastered the art of teaching others and capturing attention and inspiration and all of the things that go into teaching. Just having mastered one thing is what is a key component to being becoming good at a lot of things because you understand and feel what mastery is that you have blind spots where and when they um, they may show up and our mutual friend Tim Ferriss you're just on Tim's show not too long ago I've been on there as well his he's a great example of someone who's mastered something and then now can lift and stamp this into so many other worlds so my question for you is is mastery um, of one thing. I encourage people to go super deep on the thing that they care a lot about and that that will allow them to then, you know, be, be more broadly great at many things, which is a, uh, a desire of mine. And, you know, presumably we, as humans, we want to be good at a lot of things that might be, a, and in, maybe that's selfish in thinking that I want to know if you think that this concept of mastery that I'm put for put forward here, is this what, um, helps us hone that intuition and this is the outsider thinking because if you're travis and you want to invent uber and you say wow i was an expert in this area i i'm legendary in this domain and now i want to apply it to taxis and now i want to apply it to delivery and now i wanted to apply it so am i on to something here or how am i blind to my own theory <laughs> i i think it's i think it's good advice overall i think I, I worry a lot about people going broad before they go deep uh, yeah, because they, they end up, they end up sort of stretching themselves too thin and you get run into this Jack of all trades, master of none problem. Uh, that being said, I think there's, there's also a risk if you go too far in the other direction and you end up being, you know, like I see this all the time in, um, in the tech world where, you know, somebody masters one coding language and then it just becomes a hammer and they think everything is a nail. And it doesn't, you know, in a lot of cases, it doesn't apply. So I think it's it's always a combination of the two. Um, I think from you know from looking at a lot of the research on this and um, and talking with friends like Angela Duckworth from Grit or David Epstein from Range, um, mm -hmm. one thing that there's a lot of consensus on is that we should all go through a sampling period before we um, we seize and freeze on whatever that that domain of mastery might be. So you know the the mistake with parents is they basically you know try to turn their kids into Tiger Woods. When in fact, David Epstein would say, you, want, you actually want Roger Federer playing nine different sports uh, before he you know, goes and, and focuses and concentrates on tennis. Um, and I think we can think about careers the same way. Uh, we can think about choices of, you know, of majors in, in universities the same way. Uh, that you really want to try out a bunch of things for two reasons. One is 
the more options you sample, the more clarity you gain about what interests you. Um, and then two, also, as you sample different options, you can begin to develop uh, sort of more, um, more clarity around how some of your interests might fit together. Um, and sometimes that means you just end up going deep in one field. Sometimes that means you realize there's an interdisciplinary field that you want to bring together and you go deep on the nexus of two fields. Uh, and I think that's where, where creativity often emerges. So I think, um, yeah, I'd rather see people err on the side of starting deep and then broadening than just beginning broad and feeling like they didn't, they didn't establish any excellence anywhere. Awesome. Beautiful idea. And I want to be sure every once in a while I forget that there are people tuned in from all over the world and they're asking questions because I've, again, I, I'd handcuff myself to you if we were in the same room so that I could continue to pick your brain about creativity. <laughs> but knowing that we're uh, running a little bit long uh, or the flip side of that is we're a little bit short on time. I do want to ask a question that came from the internet, which is um, Jessica Aperture says, especially around these thoughts of cognitive entrenchment, intuition and whatnot. Uh, Jessica's asking, do you have these thoughts in writing that she can refer to and read more about? And again, this topic of intuition and trusting and, and intentment and, and, and sorry, entrenchment and um, what of your vast um, work, written work, can you point to for people who want to know a little bit more about this? It's kind to ask. Uh, so on intuition specifically, chapter two of originals is where I covered, I think, the, the most interesting and relevant evidence, excuse me, and examples that I've come across. And then on uh, cognitive entrenchment shows up there as well. I, um, I actually just did a, a little bit of a, a dive into it in a podcast episode called Career Decline is Not Inevitable, uh, where I looked at how people who sustain uh, their, their career success and even find new creative peaks as they age one of the things they do is they look for ways to escape cognitive entrenchment. Uh, and that might mean working in a new country. It might be in, mean learning or mastering a new skill. It might be collaborating with somebody whose expertise is completely different from yours. Um, that really sort of stretches you outside of your comfort zone. And so that would be one, one place to go if you're interested in that theme. Amazing. Um, again, I want to give a shout out to the global community here that's paying attention. I want to say thank you, Adam, for your time. Uh, I do also want to take a second and direct people to Work Life, uh, which is your podcast in collaboration with Ted, and of course your TED Talk. Those are great places for you know you you referenced um, the woman who just asked that question referenced writing, but I can't say enough about your uh, the podcasts and uh, and the talks that are widely available online. Um, final question before we uh, ride off into the can't really say sunset because it's ten forty a.m. <laughs> where I'm at right now. Uh, and it has to do with the pursuit of excellence. Um, at what point or at what role does excellence have in our journey of discovering our own creativity? Because so many people, when we take this first effort at something, we suck. And there's this desire to be good. We're social animals. We want to fit in. Acceptance is important. And yet nobody gets good without sucking and you know this we, we touched on it briefly and I, I went a different direction it's almost coming back to the shitty first draft thing so yep. what role do you find excellence plays in your own life and what advice would you give around excellence for those who are trying to pursue it in creativity and entrepreneurship oh it's it's a it's a meaty topic i think when i think about excellence uh, for me it's, it's the alternative to perfection right? so perfection is impossible Excellence is something we can shoot for daily and maybe achieve occasionally, right? So 
uh, I think it, it just it becomes a, a manageable but still aspirational bar to shoot for. And I think that I mean the, the basic mistake that most people make is a really simple one, which is they get stuck in comparing themselves to others when they should be comparing themselves to themselves. And I would go right back to the mental time travel idea here and say, I'll, I'll give you actually a personal example on this, Chase. When, when I wrote Originals, a good friend of mine called and said, what are you doing to celebrate? I was like, celebrate? I'm sorry, like, I'm, a, I'm an author. I write books. Like, that's what we do. And she said, well, you know, don't, don't you think this is a big milestone? It's not like you write a book every day. You know, you should, you should mark the moment. And all of a sudden I realized that all, I'd landed in a completely different mental space than when I wrote my first book. When, you know, if, if you had told me five years earlier that I was going to publish a book and that anyone other than my mom would read it, I would have been over the moon. <laughs> that was such a cool thing to have done. And then I, I just started to really take it for granted. And so that became a cue for me to start the, the rewind process, to say every time I accomplish something new, I want to ask, how would my three years ago or five years ago self have felt about this? And then I owe it to myself to, to experience the same joy. Nice. And that's the first part. The second part, though, is to say, I don't want to stop there. I don't want to get satisfied with anything I've accomplished. I always want to raise the bar for my future self. And so as soon as I finish celebrating that moment, when I feel like I've achieved some level of excellence or somebody insists that I have, even if I don't believe it internally, then the next step is to say, okay, if I could fast forward and imagine my five years down the road self, uh, what would that version of me be thrilled to have accomplished? And how do I set my sights now on pursuing that level of excellence? And I think keeping those two versions of yourself in the rear view mirror uh, or in what's like a, is there a forward view mirror that's in the future? <laughs> I need a DeLorean for that one, I guess. But you need both of those mirrors. And I think if you're constantly comparing your current level of excellence to your past self and your desired future self, it just, it means that comparison is no longer the thief, thief of joy. Comparison is a source of joy when you compare to your, your past self. And it's also a path to future joy when you compare to your not yet existing self. Brilliant. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about originals and, uh, you know, you, there's a little reference there in that to give and take the first book that a lot more people read than just your mom. And, uh, that bit in the end about finding joy, I'm hark I'm, I'm remembering a lot from option B facing adversity and finding joy. Um, so if, you know, we've, we've over-indexed on originals because it's hyper-focused on creativity. It's but what you do. Yeah, for everyone. It's what you who, are, also. <laughs> for everyone who's listening, I, I also, um, I, I, thank you for writing those other books. You know, option B again, written with uh, Cheryl Sandberg. Um, so we've given folks uh, a cornucopia of your work. Um, is there any other places that you'd want to point people uh, to learn a little bit more about you or your work? Um, and and what's the best place for people? Um, to track along with what you're doing on an ongoing basis? I mean, I think it's, it's the usual suspects, uh, social media and then adamgrant.net. Uh, my favorite thing lately has been, I do a monthly newsletter called Granted, uh, where I try to curate my favorite insights around work and psychology and, and how we can all bring more generosity and creativity into our lives, but in a hopefully data-driven way. So um, that's, that's kind of my, my vehicle for sharing what I'm thinking about and learning from. 
So true. Thank you so much for that. That newsletter is phenomenal. Also, all of your writing on giving uh, and the power of that as a key to success. I want to say thank you so much for being on the show, Adam, uh, and the worldwide audience tuning in with us. Uh, there's a lot of virtual applause happening right now. So I want to say thank you and uh, hope you have a great uh, week. We're here. It's Thursday heading into the weekend. Um, anything I forgot to ask that you need to say before we sign off? No, Chase, I, I just want to say thank you, one, for having me, um, but more importantly, too, for engaging with my work so deeply. Um, if, you know, the I, I, all joking aside, if you had told me that I was going to get to have a conversation like this uh, when I was sitting down to, to become an author, uh, I would have been in warp speed mode to, to get to today because uh, it's, it's just really exciting to be asked a bunch of novel questions and get to think differently about the topics that I care so deeply about and even I think more critical than that, you've, you've built an amazing community. Um, and I think, you know, I know a lot of people personally who felt like they were sort of on a, a creative island uh, or were looking for creativity and, and didn't know where to find it. And Creative Live has been a home for so many of those people. And I know um, on behalf of many of them, I just want to say I'm grateful for the work you do. Uh, thank you so much. There's, you know, uh, dozens of really committed people that go to work there every day. It's a team effort, as you know, from your organizational psychology research. Um, it's a team of really highly committed people. Thank you for the kind words. And most importantly, thank you for the work that you put out in the world. The global community looks to you as an icon, an icon and a beacon in this area and keep doing what you're doing. And I'll look forward to hopefully, hopefully hanging out. Maybe we'll be uh, speakers. will share a stage somewhere at some point, but you're always welcome here. If you have any new ideas, um, this is a, a fertile ground to plant the seeds and, uh, everyone here is really attuned to your work. So thank you so much for being on the show. And if you were just tuning in, you missed a doozy. We'll make sure this is replayed. It'll of course go out on all of the uh, audio podcast platforms. Um, thank you, Adam, for being on the show. Grateful for your time and look forward to the next one soon. Thanks, Chase. Hey, that was an awesome episode. But before you bounce, just I got three quick thoughts. First, thank you for being in this community. It gives me so much juice. I can't even tell you so much juice that when I hit publish and this show goes out into the ether, that there's an amazing community of like-minded people just like you consuming and sharing the show. So thank you. Second, it would be huge. It would mean the world to me if you left a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, we're regularly featured at the top slot there on Apple's podcast page and others in Spotify, etc. And that's because of your reviews. So if you've ever wanted to uh, lend a hand or you got some value from me in the past and you want to pay it forward, that would be amazing. And then lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you shared the content that you get here. Whether it's a screenshot or a photo of where you're listening, anything via Instagram stories um, or any other social feeds tagging me and the guests. Now, I repost this content and your comments all the time, so I would love to share your shout outs in my feed too. Um, not only do these shout outs, uh, are, are they good for you and me, but they also help us book amazing guests because they see the reach that you cultivate. This is a way for you to help contribute to the show. So again, want to say thanks. I'm just at Chase Jarvis. You can use at Creative Live as well. And the guests are easy to track down because they are, well, they're usually quite well-known people. Um, but again, thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to being in your ears again, hopefully tomorrow.